Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John and I began a deep dive into his cross-examination of Robert Durst with a conversation about the first day of that cross. On today's episode, we move on to day two of Lewin's cross of Robert Durst. That's coming up right after the break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, as we began to do on our last episode, sometimes before I ask John Lewin about a specific section of his cross-examination of Robert Durst, we will play that section as it was presented in our Jury Duty podcast. And now, here's my conversation with John Lewin about day two of his cross-examination of Robert Durst, which, by the way, we covered in season two, episode 22 of this Jury Duty podcast. I want to zero in on day two of your cross of Bob, and I want to begin with your questioning him about his struggle with Peter Schwartz that resulted in Schwartz's orbital bone being fractured. Here's how that cross-examination went. Your other part of your sworn testimony is, I want to understand this, you think that he might have hit his face on your foot. Is that correct? I think he hit his face on the coffee table. And then you said, quote, he might have hit his face on my foot, unquote. Can you describe what you meant by that? The two of us fell down on the floor. Kathy had gone to Greece the previous summer, and we had bought a Greek rug called a Flocati, F-L-O-K-A-T-I. The Flocati is about two inches thick, and it was about four by five feet wide. It flew out from underneath our feet, and we both fell down. He hit his face on something. Probably the coffee table. Maybe my foot. I was wearing cowboy boots. You would agree. Um, there's a remind me. There's another struggle in this case where people fall to the ground and the other person gets injured. Do you know what I'm referring to? No. No. 
Isn't that what you said happened to Morris Black? No. You said you struggled, you fell to the ground. I just want to clarify. Is it a possibility that maybe Morris's head ran into the bullet from your gun? Kind of like Peter Schwartz's face ran into your foot. Is that maybe what happened? No. Yeah, so that's one of those, though. That was just entertainment. So basically, Bob's up there lying. Nobody, so there are times when, you know, I'm going to go with the line because it's entertaining. And there are times when I'm trying to make a real point. This one, when when the jury heard this, that Peter's face might have run into Bob's foot, that's just Bob. And I just wanted to remind the jury that this guy will never take responsibility for anything. So that occurred, obviously, on direct, is my memory, when he said that. So I don't get my chance until cross. And I have a list I'm going to go through. So that was one of those things when he said it. I, of course, wrote it down, then put it in my cross plan. And then when I got to where I was going to go, I used it. That's much different. That was not what I would say is like a slip up like the other one where, you know, Bob is basically in a slip up admitting to murder. This is just Bob outrageously explaining how he didn't assault the guy, that the guy's foot assaulted his boob. And then obviously, as soon as I heard it, you know, you're thinking of, well, wait, that's the same thing he said with Morris. So yeah, that I mean, that material just writes itself. I want to talk about that moment where you said to Bob that he was like a rat in a cage. And it came during your questioning him about his statement on direct to DeGaron that his conversation with Kathy about having the abortion was not contentious. And this is how it went down. You said that once it was done, it was done, correct? Correct. And what you meant by that, that was in response to Mr. DeGaron asking you, was that a very contentious part of your relationship or was it not? And when you answered, well, once it was done, it was done, what you were saying was that basically it was not a contentious part of your relationship, that Kathy accepted what you had told her to do and that you both moved on. Is that correct? Once it was done, it was done. We both moved on. Isn't, though, Mr. Durst, isn't it true that, in fact, not only was the, the abortion not a minor issue, it was in actuality the beginning of the end of any good times in your relationship. Correct? Not correct. RD 330, March 15, 2015, page 52, lines 9 through 21. Please click your plane. When is Our interview, March 15, 2015. By the time Kathy disappeared, you didn't feel the same way about her that you did before, right? I mean... No, no. I mean, Gilberto has it right in her quote when she first met us. We were in love. Right. Period. No two ways about it. We were in love. That lasted about two years. Right. And then we had the thing with the abortion. Right. And that was the end of it. I don't feel that way at all. I'm surprised I said. Well, you can't blame Mr. Jarecki for this one, correct? Correct. So, you're agreeing you said it, correct? I agree I said it. Did I give you a script in advance or tell you, here's what I would like you to say during our interview for your plea bargain? No. So, you would agree that everything you just said there came completely from your own mind, from your own mouth, 
from your own memory, correct? Sure. And you would also agree, Mr. Durst, that you have to admit to that. You don't have a choice because it's in front of you. It's being played to you. It's not from Jarecki. You're trapped. Like a little rat in a cage. Yeah, I totally remember this. Bob and testimony tried to make it sound like the abortion thing was a minor thing that they got over. And I knew it wasn't true. That's what he said. I confronted him about it. He said, no, that's not true. And then I played the clip, and he had nothing to say. He was stuck. He had a look on his face, a hesitation. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, you're like a rat in a cage. Should not have said that. Like I told you, there are two things that I can say in this trial that I should not have said. That one was actually, in my opinion, the worst. But, you know, six months of trial, that stuff's going to happen. And when you compare the unethical, intentionally unethical, inappropriate, unprofessional things that the defense did from day one, I mean, knowingly, we'll get to it, but in the closing, where DeGuerin says that evidence was admitted of Galveston to prejudice you, he's commenting on why evidence is admitted, which he's not allowed to do. He's saying that the judge specifically admitted that evidence to prejudice the jury. And then he says, and I've seen all the evidence in this case, and the Galveston jury saw a lot more than you did. So now he's saying, and I know evidence that you don't know. It's basic 101 lawyer misconduct. There's no way he doesn't know that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In the next part of my conversation with John Lewin, we discuss the moment when he responded to Durst's sarcastic quip about the length of Lewin's questions with a dig at Durst's capacity for dishonesty. It's interesting that both the rat in the cage comment and you've set the perjury record comment came the same day, the second day of testimony. And just to refresh your memory, and I'm sure you don't need it refreshed on this one, this is how you've set the perjury record comment went down. Mr. Durst, is it really your position that your life shows Lenox Hill Hospital to go to rehab when that was going to be the number one program she wanted to match for her residency. Does that make sense to you at all? I think I need to congratulate you. You have just broken your personal record. You have filled up 18 lines on my tablet. <laughs> and I want to congratulate you. You've set the perjury record. And then all the objections and stuff. But I want to pose a theory to you, John that those two situations come on the day that you realize that Bob's never going to admit it. Do you think that realization hardened on that day, or do you think it came before that? Oh, no, it came during the very first stage. If you remember, I started off, and my goal in this cross was I'm going to make this real intimate, real personal. I'm going to talk softly. I'm going to appeal to Bob very early and say, you know, hey, listen, Bob, you know, in essence, this evidence is overwhelming. Just tell us what happened. The media's here. They're watching you. 
you're never going to have an opportunity where all the cameras are looking at you. That was the hook that I had. There were only two reasons why Bob was going to ever admit what he had done, okay? And they're related. The first is that Bob had to decide that it's going to be better to be here than it's going to be in New York because he knew and the defense knew that they were he was likely going to get charged in New York. And originally, it was my understanding that the conditions in New York were going to be worse than they were going to be in California. It turns out that is not true of where he would have been housed in Westchester County pending trial. And trial wasn't going to happen for a long period of time. So once Bob understood that his accommodations were not going to be any worse, it took that away. The second reason that Bob was going to say what happened was because he is sitting there going, you know what, it's going terrible, I'm going to get convicted, and I want the audience. So I will tell you right now, if you could go back to Bob, if you were still alive, you could say, Bob, listen, you're going to get convicted in this trial. You know this in advance. What would you do? And I will tell you, 100%, I am confident that he would have gotten up and said that Kathy accidentally died, that he told his father and his brother, and they got rid of Kathy's body. So he would have gotten up there, lied, and tried to take his father and his brother down with him. The problem for Bob is he's so privileged, he's so spoiled, he's so narcissistic, and Dick is in his ear telling him how great it's going. You know, oh, Bob, you're going to win. You know, it's going great. That he let that false hope, he let himself believe, you know what, I got out of Galveston, I'm going to get out of this. But if he knew the result in advance, that's what he would have done. No question about it. So I knew within 20 minutes of starting cross that that wasn't what was going to happen. Right. My chance was going to be very quickly. So, I mean, John, obviously you know the case way better than I do, and you know Bob way better than I do. But I think at the end he felt the battle between you and him was more important than any other battle in his life. No way. I got to a point, and we would always say this, if Bob had five bullets, he would shoot Douglas five times. But at the end of the trial, if Bob had five bullets, he would shoot Douglas three times, shoot me once, and then shoot Douglas again. That's not exactly what I'm saying. I'm not saying he hated you more than he hated Douglas. I absolutely agree that he hated Douglas more than anything in the world. What I'm saying, that the way Bob's ego worked and the way Bob's mind worked was that he would never have believed that he was going to be convicted. I don't think it was Dick or David or whoever in his ear telling him it's going great. I think it was Bob believing that the matching of wits with you, with his you know, Javert or Porfiry Petrovich from Crime and Punishment, that that was, in a way, like the defining drama of his life, like in Bob's brain at that moment. And so it's not because he hated you more than he hated Douglas. That's absolutely not the case. But it's because the drama with you, like the nine days on the witness stand, were what he was living for. So those are are two different things. I agree with the last thing you said. It was not the battle with me. Bob is just too narcissistic to care. What it was is Bob loved being the center of attention. So that when he's on the stand, he is the center of attention. So what, what was turning him on was not the battle with me. It was I'm up there 
and everybody's watching me. That's who Bob is. By the way, if the issue were more of the battle that he was going to have with me, he would have probably prepared better. That's not him. This was never about, you know, it's so funny. The media tried to make this out on both ways. This is Moby Dick, you know, Lewin chasing the whale. I'm Captain Ahab. Such a crock of shit. This, listen, I love this case. But I'm like this in every case, and anybody who knows me knows it. This is how I approach every trial I've ever done for almost 30 years. I go all out, all the time. I turn over every rock, and I do everything possible. The difference in this case was there were a lot more rocks, and I had infinite time to turn them over. This was never about, oh, Lewin's career battle. Not at all. Listen, it was a, this was definitely my career case because of all the factors that were involved, and I got the chance to do really good work. I am extremely proud of the work that the team did because, as I've said before, I'm an L.A. County deputy DA through and through. This is what I've done my entire professional career. I care about this office. I care about the people I work with. I care about our reputation. I was so tired. I'm hearing all the time, we can't win the big one. We are not any good. We can't put on a good case. So my goal from day one was, and my team would tell you, listen, if we have a jury that does their job, we win this case 20 times over. There's no defense they can come up with. There's nothing they can do to change it. And then they made it even worse by their approach and their stipulation. So I knew going into this trial, we're going to win. The question is, how are we going to win? And I many times talked to my team and said, hey, listen, we're going all out. Yeah, I could have done a shorter job on Bob Durst. He probably would have been convicted anyway, but it wouldn't have been the complete job. Habib worried about well, my closing. Do I cover this? Do I do this? Habib, dude, do whatever you want to do. This is about how you feeling good about the work you did. And I will tell you, make sure you don't leave anything out because I know you. And if we have a bad juror, I will accept that the juror fucked up. Because I'll go through and go, okay, objectively, here's what I presented. There's no juror doing their job that would not have convicted. They did what they did. They got to live with that. I would have gone home and I would have been fine. I would have been very frustrated with that juror. Habib would have said, oh, I blew it. I should have done X. I should have done Y. So I told him, so do X and Y because you got to live with the result. And that's what he did. And that's what I did. And I really feel like Again, I'm not going to be falsely modest about this. There has not been a case ever that was any more effectively prosecuted than this one. I put the work that we did up against anybody, anywhere, in any case. So, you know, I'm proud of the work we did. I'm proud of the efforts that we put in. And listen, did I enjoy beating the other side? Absolutely. Chesnoff and DeGarrett in particular, I loved every minute beating them. Don Ray, same thing. Chips. Like and respect Chip very much. He and I became very good friends. And we still talk frequently. Chris Garcia and I talk all the time. So that's kind of how, you know, I would view what happened. During your questioning of Bob about Fadwa Najami and why she would have a motivation to make up her statement that there were no drugs in the house on the night that Kathy came over to see Gilberta. Bob answered the question in a way that sort of became a pattern with him in that he would throw out facts there that were not admissible and said that Gilberta was a drug dealer. Yeah, she's been convicted of felonies. It was desperate. I knew by that point that the jury did not like him. 
One of the things that, again, people don't understand, and this was our plan, and this is always the plan. Why did we start our case talking about Bob Durst, who he is? We didn't do that for some nefarious purpose. We did it because you cannot understand the evidence in this case. You cannot understand all the mistakes Bob made, the carelessness. There's no way to understand that unless you first understand who Bob is, that Bob is a privileged narcissist. It's not that he's not smart enough to cover up his crimes. It's that he doesn't believe he should have to do it. I can do whatever I want to whoever I want to do it to whenever I want to do it. And that's because I'm Bob Durst. So you have to understand that in advance because if you don't, then you end up going, well, why would he do X? That's really stupid. Why would he do Y? That doesn't make any sense. You have to understand that. You also have to understand how everything is viewed by Bob through his own prison. So but Bob doesn't actually have, really, for the most part, he has very little empathy for people. It doesn't mean he doesn't like people. He doesn't care about people. He does. But what he really cares about is how those people benefit him. So listen, he cared about Susan. Because Susan was a very good friend. Of him. He cared about her a lot. But in the end, his feelings for Susan were really about how it affected Bob. So that's why we started there. Then once you understand who Bob is, then you can understand the relationship with Kathy. You can understand this narcissist, almost 30-year-old, you know, getting involved with this very, you know, naive teenager, which is what she was. Then you can understand that. Then, you know, the domestic violence portion, it makes sense. The relationship goes south. Kathy wants a divorce. During the relationship, she wants a kid. Bob says, you're not getting an abortion. I'll tell you how many kids we'll have. I'll tell you how much money you'll spend. Meantime, Bob has to see Kathy actually succeeding. Jim McCormick had a very good observation with Turecki and Smerling in this case, and he said he's absolutely right. Bob basically, his accomplishment in life was being born Robert Durst. That is literally the only reason anything in his life ever happened was because of who he was and how he was born. Name me one thing that he accomplished. I don't think he can. And so... John, he set the record for perjury. You said it yourself. He did, he did set the record for perjury. Good point. Yes, that's a good point. So he's watching Kathy, someone who, by the way, he doesn't respect. He looks down on her. He feels he's smarter. He feels he's more accomplished to some degree. Now, he knows. And by the way, one of the reasons that Bob, you know, sometimes, and we all know people like this, they basically abandon conventional success you know, I'm not going to show up at the office. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to reject the corporate lifestyle. A lot of people do it because they can't make it in the corporate lifestyle. So what they basically say is, I'm not going to college. I'm going to abandon that. Well, you're not going to college because you started it and you fucked it up. So now what you're going to do is, is you're going to basically rewrite history and go, I didn't want that anyway. That was Bob for everything. Meantime, Kathy is making something of her life. And Bob is watching her mature and succeed, and he can't handle it. And Kathy, the older she gets, remember, I have to remember this. My son, which blows my mind, just turned 20, okay? He is older than Kathy was when she and Bob started. That's mind-boggling to me. So she was a kid, and she grew up, and she started accomplishing things, and he couldn't handle it, and she realized. And this is why I presented this story. Again, people don't understand. One of the best description of the Bob and Kathy relationship. It's not the hair pulling. The hair pulling thing is very dramatic and it shows how violent he is. But the best description of the relationship, and it is literally the best description, is when Bob is explaining that we would go out to dinner and I would say, well, why don't I'll get this? Why don't you get a little of this? And we'll split it. 
And eventually, Kathy's like, no, I don't want to get that. You get what you're going to get, and I'll get what I'm going to get, and leave my food alone. That innocuous little story tells you volumes. So basically, Kathy grew up. What that story stands for is Kathy basically is saying, hey, I'm sick of your fucking bullshit. I don't want to deal with it anymore. And that was, you know, basically a metaphor for their relationship. I found that extremely powerful. I don't know about you. Do, 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 do you find that as powerful as I do? I do think it's a very apt description of the dynamic that I came to understand between them and the evolving nature of the relationship. And the best thing about it is who's giving the narrative. So it's one thing for somebody to say, hey, Bob, it seems like this is where your relationship was at, right? So if someone had told that story, you'd go, yeah, you know what? I bet that's very accurate. But when Bob tells the story, there's no debate. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin and I move on in our deep dive to day three of his cross-examination of the defendant, Robert Durst. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can find more information about this trial at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>